want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel and excited to get back into our study of what lies ahead, the tribulation. You know, we took a break last week because we had David Fiorazzo with us. And if you uh, have not had the chance to watch those, uh, listen to those uh, podcasts or watch the video, those are posted at uh, notbyworks.org. A great time with David. Appreciate the warm reception that our church gave him. But Excited this morning to get back into our study of what lies ahead. And again, the book, if you don't already have it, feel free to pick up a copy at the back of the auditorium here. Those online can check out, uh, get the book at uh, notbyworks.org at our store. Also, I want to remind you, don't forget to download the free Not By Works mobile app. I'm getting regular emails. Got one last night from a lady that said, oh, I'm so thankful for this app. I'm able to automatically track with all the podcasts. And so... Uh, it's just a great tool to kind of stay in touch with everything that we're doing here at Plum Creek Chapel and not by works. And you can link directly to the church from the app uh, as well. And then uh, finally, just a reminder, I should have updated this slide, but it's in the uh, bulletin this morning. And for those of you watching online, we are taking a break for the next three weeks from our midweek service and our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, I will post archived uh, Messages. I worked on that a little bit this weekend, going back into our archive stuff that's never been posted on our podcast channel before, but just some good uh, uh, audio to listen to each Wednesday so that we're not, you know, leaving you stranded there. Uh, but we will not live stream. We will not have our meeting here uh, this week because of Thanksgiving and then the next two weeks because of my uh, travel schedule. So please uh, watch your email inbox for those uh, reminders and alerts. If you're not signed up yet for uh, the Plum Creek Chapel newsletter. You can do that right at the PlumCreekChapel.org website. Just enter your email in the box there. You automatically subscribe. You'll get all of our notifications. Same thing with Not By Works. If you want to subscribe to that, uh, we send out a few different things uh, sometimes uh, uh, than Plum Creek Chapel. That's on the NotByWorks.org website. Right there on the homepage, enter your email uh, in the box. All right, so we left off, we've been studying obviously the end times and specifically zeroing in on the tribulation. This is our 12th week talking about this section that you see in yellow there, the seven-year period uh, that will take place once the Antichrist is unveiled and uh, kind of takes charge of the world for that seven-year period as the Bible repeatedly talks about him doing Old and New Testament alike. Um, and we've talked about God's uh, judgment that he's going to bring, out, uh, bring on the earth, the wrath of God it's called. And <clears throat> we looked at the, the seven seals of God's wrath some time ago when those seals are opened. Each one explains a different one of his judgments. We'll review that in a second. Then we looked at the trumpets, and that's where we left off. And we've been, uh, uh, I start to say we've been looking forward to getting to the bold judgments. But I don't know why anybody would look forward to getting to the bold judgments, as horrific as they are. But uh, we have been anticipating, anyway, that uh, study next in our uh, sequence of events here. So if you look at our chart of the book of Revelation, uh, everything in blue there are uh, the, kind of the sequential order of events. And you'll notice the bowls come in the second half. And it's not really drawn to scale there because as we're going to talk about this morning, the bowl judgments all take place in the last two to three days, most likely, of the seven-year period. And it's kind of hard to, to, to fit that in. Well, you have to have really small type uh, to fit that in, in the final three days. So it makes it look like it takes place in the second half of the last three and a half years. 
but in reality it's kind of all coming to a culmination there in conjunction with the Battle of Armageddon and Christ's return. So the seal judgments are introduced in chapter 6 with the first seal judgment being the unveiling of the Antichrist. The first four seal judgments are what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, the, the first one is the rider on the white horse who is the imposter who's going out to make war and try to take over the world. And we know that the seal judgments are the commencement of the very uh, specific wrath of God that the, the Bible has talked about and anticipated really since sin entered the world. And obviously God's wrath has been propitiated or satisfied by the blood of Christ, but that doesn't mean that everyone accepts that payment on their behalf. You know, someone can, can offer you a gift, but if you don't accept it, it does not become yours. And so even though the wrath of God has been propitiated, meaning satisfied, uh, and the payment has been made, unbelievers as of yet have not received that. And the only way to receive it, of course, is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so believers can never face the wrath of God. That's the reason Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that when this prophetic end times physical wrath of God is poured out on planet earth, believers will not be there. We, uh, he has not appointed us to be on the earth at that time, First uh, Thess 5, 9 and 1, 10. So, uh, but nevertheless, for those who are there, it will be a horrific time of judgment. And so we looked at each of those and we noticed that part of that judgment results in uh, the death of one quarter of the world's population there with the fourth seal judgment. Then the seventh seal judgment, as you kind of, if you noticed here on this chart, the seventh seal sort of opens up the next seven judgments, which are called trumpets, because each one of them is announced with a trumpet. And we get those in chapters 8 and 9. And the trumpet judgments, we went through each of them uh, one by one. We see the, in, the judgments of God intensifying on the earth. And, of course, uh, it's going to get worse and worse and worse, and the intensity of the judgment, the intensity of the cosmic battle between the wrath of Satan, which is also competing to try to take over the world, and the wrath of God's justice, which is being poured out, uh, just get more intense and, 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 and reach climactic heights at the Battle uh, of Armageddon. The, uh, remember, the final three trumpet judgments that are announced are also called woes, the first, second, and third woe, again, an indication of their uh, severity. And then we did a quick summary here of the uh, numbering the dead so far up through the seal and trumpet judgments, which does not account, by the way, for collateral damage from some of the other things like the earth being uh, you know, burned up in the sea, drying up, those kinds of things. But just based on the specific numbers that God's Word tells us, we can assume, we have to make an assumption at the start of this to be able to do calculations, and we just picked a number of assuming that there were one billion Christians who got raptured at the time Christ comes back. Obviously, we don't know the answer to that question. Could be more, could be less. But just to pick a number, we said one billion. And assuming that and taking the numbers that the Bible says of people that die during these uh, fourth seal and the sixth trumpet, by the time you get to the end of the trumpet judgments, the earth's population has been reduced by half, if our numbers are correct here. So then that leads us to the bowl judgments, and uh, that seventh trumpet sounds, and in it are seven more judgments 
that are uh, pictured in the book of Revelation as bowls overflowing with uh, the wrath of God. So again, if you look at our timetable, we're probably right near the very end because uh, many of these bowl judgments relate uh, to the preparation for the Battle of Armageddon, uh, topographical changes in the terrain around there and the Euphrates River uh, being dried up so that people can walk, armies can walk across on dry land and so forth. So, so let's begin with chapter 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Um, this uh, word loud that you see highlighted there uh, is the word megas. And it's a very common word that's used in the Greek New Testament. And it's used... Uh, In this uh, one uh, chapter, uh, it's uh, used 11 times, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. But it's, it's the word uh, megas. It's used 82 times in the book of Revelation. So it's, a, it's just a, a word that sort of indicates, um, uh, you know, s- uh, severity, or the Greek word is exceedingly great. Uh, and, uh, and, and so sometimes it's translated great, sometimes it's translated loud, and I think in chapter 16 twice it's translated loud, and seven times it's translated uh, great. It's used 242 times throughout the New Testament, so it's not necessarily special in the sense of being unique or have any special meaning, but the number of times it is used in the book of Revelation just sort of reminds us that big things are coming. These are unprecedented events unlike ever before seen on the earth and when you get to the bold judgments the number of times he uses megas really shows that we're getting to the uh, to the climactic event so megas you know we talk about when we use mega in english if we say you know mega bucks so boy that's a lot of money or if we say a mega hurricane that's a that's a gigantic category five hurricane or megaplex theater boy that has a lot of screens it's a big theater so um, I used this illustration way back at the beginning. I think it might have even been our first message in Hebrews. Uh, but uh, to illustrate the significance of this word, I was thinking of the 2018 movie, The Meg. Do you guys remember that? Well, that's where that word comes from, mega shark. So the etymology is the Greek word megas. And uh, to, to illustrate just how big the shark was supposedly supposed to be in this movie, uh, here's this diagram showing the meg on the far left and a normal great white shark and then there's a little diver who's about to be launched. Uh, but if you look at the book of Revelation as we see this wrath of God kind of progressing you might say that this represents the seals, this the trumpets and then we get to the bowls. And this is really big judgment. Mega, mega judgment. And so the first bowl judgment is ugly and painful sores. Ugly and painful sores. Um, so uh, these plagues that are about to be poured out uh, are God's answer to Satan's last great effort to take over the world, to frustrate God's sovereign rule over the earth, over his creation, to kind of inject himself and usurp the throne. Of course, he tried to do that uh, in, in heaven, and he was cast to the earth, and uh but here at the end, he knows his time is short, and so he is uh, hes doing everything he can, pulling out all the stops. 
So we read, the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and foul and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image, who worshipped his image. So if you think back, and I know we've been doing this for a long time, and then we've taken some breaks because of uh, me being gone or special guest, but the first four trumpet judgments uh, fell on man's environment rather than on man himself. But now we get to the bold judgments, and they this first bold judgment falls directly on mankind. And it resulted in uh, these ugly, uh, the word translated foul there is kakos in Greek, just means ugly, uh, harsh. And then loathsome, which is the Greek word paneros, meaning painful. <laughs> so basically, ugly and painful sores is what these are uh, that break out on all of the beast worshipers. Warren Wiersbe says this, it's, it's an awesome thought to consider almost the entire population of the world suffering from a painful malady that nothing can cure. Constant pain affects a person's disposition so that he finds it difficult to function, difficult to get along with other people. Human relations during that period will certainly be at their worst. Now, by this time, so we're almost seven years through the tribulation, there will be a great remnant of people who have gotten saved as a result initially of the ministry of the 144,000 evangelists, Jewish evangelists, but also just as a result of the people that get saved then telling their friends and neighbors and relatives. So this particular judgment only falls upon unbelievers, uh, but there will be, and there will be a number of believers at this point. But if I had to guess, I would say in keeping with the remnant principle of Scripture, that it'll be a very small number of believers who are still alive at this point. Um, so to kind of put that in theological perspective, first of all, I, 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 uh, in defending that statement, I would say that we know that uh, the uh, text in Revelation tells us there's a great number of martyrs, people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, too numerous to count, that come that, that are in heaven because they were martyred, they were beheaded after believing the gospel. Uh, we also know that there, the number uh, of believers that are not martyred are going to be hiding out. Those that are left are going to be fleeing for the hills, heading for the hills, hiding out. We also know that Jesus, in the parables of the kingdom, gives the parable of the mustard seed, in which he talks about how when the kingdom comes, it will start out very, very small. So not long after these bold judgments, Christ comes back, or in conjunction with the seventh bold judgment, Christ comes back. The kingdom is inaugurated. He says to those believers that are still alive on the earth, Come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. That's the sheep when he comes back. And then the goats, he says, Depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So if you correlate the mustard seed uh, parable and the fact that it starts small, but after a thousand years on the kingdom, it just flourishes into this massive worldwide kingdom serving under Christ because there's, uh, sin is held in check, there's no uh, injustice, there are no uh, uh, you know, uh, tragedies and accidental deaths and things. So it's a, uh, an unprecedented time of peace and justice and righteousness, so that means populations can flourish. There won't be disease and those types of things. So I believe that uh, when Wearsby says that uh, almost the entire population of the world will suffer these judgments, I think he's right. 
I think by comparison, believers that are, that are alive that won't face this particular malady uh, is pretty small. So ugly and painful sores was the first bowl, and then all sea life is destroyed. All sea life is destroyed. You look at verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man. Now, if you're studying with us in our midweek study on how to read and understand the Bible, hopefully by now you've learned to pick up when you see figures of speech, especially similes. Uh, and a simile is a comparison using like or as. So here we see it became blood as of a dead man. So it's somewhat unclear uh, whether this is literal blood. Uh, it would seem strange if it was literal blood to be called blood as of a dead man, because what other kind of blood is there? I suppose he could be distinguishing it maybe from animal blood, but that seems to be an unnecessary distinction. So it's also possible that um, the coagulating, rotting blood of all the death and, and, uh, of people sort of turns the water red. Um, we, we can't be 100% certain. The text itself is a little bit ambiguous. Uh, if he had just said it became blood, period, we would take the Bible at its word. If the Bible does not give us an internal indication that a figure of speech is being employed, we take it literal. And that's the way you interpret Revelation in particular. Uh, but here we've got that addition of this figure of speech as a blood. But every living creature in the sea died. So you can begin to see how the earth will be essentially uninhabitable until Christ comes back. But when Christ, God in the flesh, comes back, of course, you know, he can do anything. And so he's able to bring about the restoration of the land quite quickly uh, during the kingdom age. Um, and then you see the next one. And by the way, one distinction between the trumpets and bowls, which again indicates that the bowls are rapidly pouring out and leading up to this climactic event, is that with the seals and trumpets, you had a judgment, then it ended, right? Judgment starts, stops, next judgment. These have a continuing process, you know, continuing presence. Um, it's not like when the first bold judgment ended, all sores on the people went away, right? Or it's not like after the second bold judgment ended, all the animals in the sea suddenly came back to life, right? Uh, but the third bold judgment is all the fresh waters uh, are destroyed. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now here, no uh, indication of a figure of speech. They became blood. All the freshwater sources become blood in this plague. And this is very similar to what we see in the book of Exodus with the children of Israel uh, leaving and the plagues that were brought upon Egypt. Um, but people cannot exist very long without fresh water, right? So if you don't have a Berkey filter or you don't have uh, stored water or, you know, water purification tablets or some Clorox or something, you're going to be in big trouble at this point. Um, and then we see sort of an interjection here. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. And they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. So John hears this praise of God in heaven that interrupted his uh, sort of narration of the outpouring of the bowls that was going on uh, briefly. And uh, the angel of the waters here evidently refers to 
the angel responsible for the sea and fresh water. You might call it the superintendent of God's water department. Uh, so we know that God has angels, and there are also demons that are territorial in nature, that are assigned certain responsibilities and tasks. We've talked previously about the different classes of angels and did a, a brief overview of angelology. Uh, you can go back and look at uh, some of those. We also talk about that at the beginning of the Spirit of the Antichrist series. But uh, I thought it was kind of, kind of refreshing to know that it's not just you know, the U.S. government that can change the weather. Uh, it's uh, God. God still is in charge, and there is an angel of the waters. Um, and by the way, as a side note, since I couldn't help myself and brought it up, uh, recently I saw uh, on a Texas state government website a whole new department and section called Weather Modification. It's just right now in plain sight, they're admitting everything. So Texas is talking about how they're helping the farmers by making it rain in certain parts and doing all they can with weather, mod weather modification. So, uh, of course, I've shown you how na at the national level, there have been major contractors for decades that have been working with the government uh, to help manipulate the weather and, and do all kinds of things in the skies. Uh, it's called solar radiation management or atmospheric aerosol injection. But uh, God poured out blood on the earth dwellers because they poured out the blood of his saints and prophets. So he makes the punishment fit the crime. And uh, it's, it's interesting that God's word kind of reveals that here through this spontaneous praise from, from heaven. Um, so, you know, that's one of God's principles is that, uh, you know, going back to the Old Testament law, eye for eye and, and so forth. Um, but the punishment must fit the crime. We see this principle played out again and again. Pharaoh tried to drown the Jewish boy babies. Remember that? But it was his own army that eventually drowned in the Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows and exterminate the Jews. But, of course, Haman was himself hanged on the gallows and his family was exterminated. King Saul refused to obey God by slaying the Amalekites. So what happened? He was slain by an Amalekite. So we see this principle played out again and again, and it's being played out here. The earth is getting its just due. And then I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. I love this verse. That phrase that you see translated even so there in the New King James is one word in Greek, and it's usually translated yes, or indeed, or certainly, but most often just Yes. And so the tribulation martyrs from heaven are up there saying yes as they see this wrath being poured out upon Satan, upon the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all of those that um, are part of his regime. Um, God always judges consistently with his character. Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then in the fourth a bold judgment. We see the world's climate is altered so that the sun scorches people. So as has often been pointed out, apparently Al Gore was right. The climate is going to change. It's just not going to change because I drive an SUV. It's going to change because the sovereign creator of the universe makes it change. Um, so then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So a lot of things we can 
observe from this fourth bowl judgment. First of all, uh, the fourth trumpet judgment had darkened the sun, but this judgment actually does the opposite. It increases the sun's intensity. And uh, you can't tell by the New King James, James translation, but where it says, and men were scorched, there's a definite article there. It's the men. So going back in context to what you just said, it's talking about the ones who took the mark of the beast uh, that he had mentioned uh, earlier. So the faithful, those who did not take the mark, but believe the gospel and are, have escaped death thus far, will apparently escape this judgment as well. Uh, it's the same way that the Israelites escaped some of the plagues uh, back in Egypt. So uh, climactic changes will take place, resulting in the sun's heat becoming much hotter than normal. Uh, and, and nevertheless, instead of repenting, these beast worshipers curse God. One of the top uh, scholars, uh, widely recognized as the top scholar on the book of Revelation, uh, his commentary on Revelation is about that thick. He died not too long ago. I had the privilege of working with him in a subcommittee on the, uh, in the Council on Dispensational Hermeneutics, Dr. Bob Tom, Robert Thomas. Uh, he wrote, quote, This is the only chapter in the visual portion of Revelation that speaks of widespread human blasphemy. The other references being to blasphemy from the beast. These men have now taken on the character of the God whom they serve. They blame God for the first four plagues rather than blaming their own sinfulness. So again, the response is just one of writhing blasphemy at God because they've rejected Him. And then we see the fifth bold judgment, which is unusual darkness. Uh, coming upon uh, the earth. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. Notice his kingdom. Someone emailed me this week, uh, a listener, and wanted to know uh, references to showing that the kingdom of this earth right now is that it's Satan's kingdom, that he's in charge, that he's in power. And I listed several uh, references such as 1 John 5, 19, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, or uh, Galatians 1, 4, uh, that uh, this is a wicked, evil age, or uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the god of this age. So there's no question that Satan has temporarily usurped uh, Christ's kingdom, and he's trying to make it formal by literally taking the throne, which he does through the Antichrist at the three-and-a-half-year mark of this seven-year future period when he walks into the temple, sits on the throne literally, and demands that everybody worship him. But here, God's judgment results in his kingdom becoming full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their uh, deeds. Um, the ninth plague in uh, Exodus, in, in, during the Egyptian Exodus, uh, also involved darkness. Darkness is also seen, obviously, at the moment Christ died on the cross. It is finished. Um, throughout Scripture, there's this uh, constant juxtaposition between light and darkness. And darkness represents evil, and light represents good. And uh, so we are sons of light, not sons of darkness. And that's the reason that you see uh, most crime taking place at night doesn't mean only then, especially as things get worse and worse and worse, as the Bible says they will, you see blatant immorality right out in the open. 
these days. But generally speaking, you know, as my mom used to say, nothing good happens after dark, right? And so that's why you have security lights and that's why you have protection because criminals, generally speaking, are going to try to do things under cover of darkness. And uh, here we see that darkness being in the form of a judgment, which is going to confound Satan's efforts. Remember, Satan is not omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. So he is much like a, a military force today that's trying to maneuver their way and get strategically set up for this final battle. And if everything suddenly goes dark, now you've got much more difficulty, right? Um, and, of course, I think I've mentioned before that when there's darkness, uh, you know, maybe this is going to make it even more painful. It's going to exacerbate, you might say, the physical ailments that resulted from the first bowl judgment. You know, if you can't see uh, to find the pain reliever in the medicine cabinet, if you can't find the ointment, you know, if you can't even see to, to you know, try to uh, get to what's hurting you, then it's just going to be that much more devastating. And then we see in the sixth bowl judgment, Yes. Yeah. So the question is the last two verses we looked at here talked about how they didn't repent of their, you know, rebellion, blasphemy against God, and it's not even a choice for them, is your question, or is it a choice for them? Uh, <clears throat> Repentance here doesn't mean be saved. Repentance just means change their mind. Repentance always just means a change of mind. And all the Bible is pointing out here is that these people persisted in their rebellion. Conceivably, they could have said, we give. <laughs> they could have waved the white flag of surrender and said, you're God. Now, it wouldn't have changed their eternal destiny because nobody gets saved by changing their mind just in general. You get saved when you change your mind about Christ being the only hope for salvation and place your faith in Him. So repentance uh, here, I don't see this as salvific. I don't see He's put their faith in Christ. He's just saying they didn't repent. They didn't change their mind about their wicked actions, their wicked attitudes, their wicked thoughts. Uh, we are, And we know that by, by comparing Scripture with Scripture that because they've already taken the mark, they will not be saved. The Bible is very clear about that. So, But I think we, even if we didn't know that, <clears throat> just the context in which these verses are mentioned, for example, here where it says, they blasphemed God and did not repent of their deeds. It tells us what they're changing their mind about, or what they're not changing their mind about in this case, their deeds. They continued to persist in their rebellion, and they could have not done that. They absolutely could have stopped, but they didn't. Good, good question. So, uh, yeah, feel free, as always, to throw up your hand and ask questions. And if we have time at the end, we'll see what's, if you have any questions. But the sixth bowl judgment uh, is the Euphrates River drying up, which, again, is preparation for the Battle of Armageddon. So the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. The Euphrates River is the northeastern border of the land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants way back in Genesis 15. Uh, and here, God dries up this river that had previously turned into blood. 
so that the kings of the east can cross with their armies and do battle in the hills of Megiddo. God earlier dried up the Red Sea so the Israelites could advance uh, on the promised land from the west. He also dried up the Jordan River so they could cross over from the east. Elijah too parted the waters of the Jordan. Cyrus may have conquered Babylon, according to Jeremiah, by draining the Euphrates River and marching into the city. But here the drying up of the Euphrates will be an immediate help to these advancing armies, but it's really setting them up for defeat, uh, as was true of Pharaoh's army as well. So here's a map, uh, and based on the description from chapter 14, which we've not looked at here, um, I recently did a conference message on chapters 14 and 15 and 16, which we're looking at now. And we may go back and pick up 14 and 15. It's some of that supplemental information that's not sequential. Um, but based on chapter 14, where it tells us that during this battle, chapter 14 is looking forward to the final result of the Battle of Armageddon. It tells us that in that battle, blood will flow for 184 miles. And so uh, we know that this battle is going to take place all over Palestine, not just in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, right outside of Jerusalem. The Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kidron Valley, passes between the Temple Mount of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. So if you think when Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, uh, the, during that final week of his life, uh, on Wednesday before he celebrated the, Lord's, the Passover with his disciples in the upper room on Thursday night, he's on the Mount of Olives looking across the Kidron Valley back toward uh, Jerusalem. Much of the action in this battle will take place in the Valley of Jezreel, northern Israel. Uh, uh, but to God's going to put huge numbers of people to death. Prophet Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 63. And the blood will evidently drain out of the Jezreel Valley for a distance of 184 miles uh, down uh, toward the Dead Sea. Uh, and as far south as Edom. And so the area that's shaded in blue... I guess dark blue, not the, the sea there, Mediterranean Sea, but the dark blue, from north to south, from the top of the screen to the bottom, is about 184 miles. So that kind of gives you an idea of the devastation of this climactic battle. Remember that key word we talked about, megas. This is a tremendous moment in human history, unlike anything we've ever seen. And then he says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs. So were these frogs? No, they were like frogs, though. Coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So these thir verses 13 to 16 give further comments about this sixth bold judgment. They reveal that rulers from all over the earth will join the kings of the east in this final great conflict. Uh, we'll get to more of the story here in a moment. But the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet represent the unholy trinity. I'm sure you've heard that before. But the dragon, of course, is Satan. The beast is the false prophet. I mean, it's the Antichrist. And the false prophet is the second in command, his, his sidekick, his helper during this uh, time. And so uh, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet will evidently join in making a proclamation that will mobilize the armies of the world to converge on Palestine. And, uh, you know, something proceeding from the mouth is, is where we get that suggesting a proclamation. Uh, this is the first mention of the false prophet, but clearly comparing Scripture with Scripture, he's the, the man spoken of in chapter 13 uh, there, the beast of the sea. Uh, 
So this is the climactic moment in the Luciferian conspiracy that has been in the works for millennia. You go back a thousand years before Christ when King David wrote, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. Who's His anointed? Christ, Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And there's what are they saying? What are these kings of the earth and the, and the rulers, what are they saying? They're saying, let us break their bonds, the bonds of the Trinity, in pieces and cast their cords, the cords of the triune God, uh, away from us. And so this is the Luciferian conspiracy that I've talked a lot about, ultimately involving Satan, demons, and human agents working together to try to take over the world. And um, multiple times in different series that I've done, I've, I've diagrammed it out, talking about how at the very top tier, there's probably six or eight families that are literally worshiping Satan and talking to him and taking their marching orders from him. And then you have a second tier that involves hundreds of thousands of people, some of whom have no idea they're even part of a larger conspiracy, but they have their own agendas, uh, power, money, fame, sex, whatever it might be. And then, of course, at the bottom level of this conspiracy, you've got millions of people uh, that are involved in useful tools in Satan's plan. And many of them, I would say most of them, have no idea that they're part of a Luciferian conspiracy. But here in uh, Revelation 16, we see the final moments of this Luciferian conspiracy where you have the, the key leaders, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophets, the, unho the false prophet, the unholy trinity, coming together and giving marching orders and preparing for this final battle. Now, as we read the rest of Revelation after the tribulation, we find out that they're, you know, th that after the battle of Armageddon, Satan is essentially on life support. Now, of course, we know he's already been defeated. He was defeated at Calvary, you know. Um, but in terms of the physical battle, he's, it's, there's still one final little kick that takes place at the end of the thousand years. It's it's rather unimpressive. You know, it's kind of like a heavyweight boxing match that's highly anticipated and people have been looking forward to for weeks and HBO's charging, you know, $500 for pay-per-view and everybody's getting their popcorn and gathering watch parties. Everyone sits down and in the first 10 seconds, one guy knocks the other guy out and it's over. And you're thinking, why did I pay $500 for 10 seconds of, you know, that's what the, the end of the, the millennium is going to be. Satan's going to be released from prison, gather once again an army of unbelievers, but by then he's so weakened it's going to be pitiful to even consider. But this is really the final moment on earth prior to Christ taking the throne and taking back control of the earth from Satan um, uh, of this battle. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a powerful thing. So if we look at verse uh, 14, uh, there they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that, that great day of God Almighty. So the three unclean spirits that were like frogs that proceeded from their mouths are actually messengers, demons we now know. Remember, Satan can, he doesn't, he's not omnipresent, so he's got to send his legion of demons at times, his representatives, to go give a marching orders. These are the agents of that diabolical trio, the unholy uh, trinity. Uh, they resemble frogs in that they're unclean and loathsome. They deceive people, and what they urge them to do for their advantage results in their destruction. 
So these kings from all over the world will gather together to try to destroy Israel. Satan's purpose in bringing these soldiers into Palestine in the first place appears to be to annihilate the Jews. And when Christ returns to the earth, specifically to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us that, <coughs> they will unite in opposing him. However, God's sovereign hand will be regulating Satan's activities, and this will not be the day of Satan's triumph, but it will be the day of the Lord God Almighty's triumph. He will show himself supreme in this uh, climactic battle. The description of that battle we get in Revelation 19, that great passage about the return of Christ, chapter 19, verses 11 to 16. Uh, Jesus Christ himself gives a parenthetical invitation and warning here. We're getting closer and closer and closer to the very end. He says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So the second coming of Christ will be as a thief in the night in that it will be sudden. It will be unexpected. It doesn't mean it's going to not happen at an appointed time. You know, things can happen at an appointed time and you know, and they can still catch you off guard, right? When you light a firecracker fuse, you know pretty consistently, if the fuses are all the same size, that within 30 seconds or so you're going to hear a loud pop. But when you hear it, it still startles you, right? And that's what Jesus meant in the Olivet Discourse when he's warning that future seven-year tribulation generation to be watchful. Not that he was suggesting that it's going to come at an unpredicted time. The second coming is the most predicted event in Scripture. We know exactly when it's going to happen. But yet, there will be people who are not ready uh, for it. Uh, and those believers that are alive at that time uh, and looking forward to his return to be ushered into the kingdom uh, need to be watchful too and be ready. Uh, so the demons will assemble the kings of the earth and their armies and they will go to what is called Har-Megiddon, uh, literally the mountain of Megiddo. Uh, and uh, Har-Megiddon is, that, again, that hill surrounding Megiddo, and it's, uh, it's, it's more of a campaign, a larger region, based on comparing Scripture with Scripture, not just one specific place. And the sheer size of the armies indicates it's got to be a massive uh, place. And then uh, finally, let's go ahead and just finish up, since we'll have a good stopping point here. The seventh bold judgment is the worst earthquake in history. The worst earthquake in history. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. The final judgment has the greatest impact of all, since the air into which the angel pours his bowl is what humans breathe. So now there's no place you can escape, really. The loud voice is once again God's as it comes from the throne in the heavenly temple. And with the outpouring of the final bowl, God announced that his series of judgments for this period in history was complete. I finished everything that I want to do. My wrath of God has been poured out. My son is going to come back and take the throne. And I pointed this out at the conference I did uh, last month in Minnesota. But William R. Newell... Uh, just a, a great man of God from the 19, uh, early 20th century. Uh, he's also, uh, I think he wrote at Calvary, if I remember right. But he said, men would not have the Savior's it is finished on Calvary. So now they must have the awful it is done from the judge. That's a very sobering 
uh, sobering thought. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city, that's Babylon, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Remember in, in Revelation 19, we read that Christ comes back to tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Uh, so God will give Babylon the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. She will experience a terrible outpouring of judgment. Remember Babylon, literal rebuilt Babylon, is one of the seats of power of the Antichrist, his geographical center of power during this seven-year tribulation. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since the plague was exceedingly uh, great. And so, in addition to the terrible earthquake, and, and, and probably because of it, resulting in all of these crazy uh, climactic or climate things, uh, Every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. These are the topographical changes that we read about in the Old Testament, setting the stage for the Ezekiel Temple, which is going to be massive, much bigger than would fit on the Temple Mount today. And the total changes in the Holy Land. The uh, hailstones there, what did it say? Uh, the weight of a talent, that's about 100 pounds. So a 100-pound hailstone falling on people. Such huge masses of ice supernaturally formed would destroy anything left standing from the earthquake and would no doubt kill or seriously injure those that they hit. And in spite of the severity of the judgment, the hardness of human hearts is revealed in that final sentence. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So with the final destruction coming from the seventh bowl of the wrath of God, the stage is now set for the battle of Armageddon, the return of Christ, and the establishment of his long-awaited earthly uh, kingdom. Before we get to that in chapter 19, we have another one of those supplemental interludes that where God reveals additional information and is going to talk specifically about Babylon and the ultimate destruction of Babylon in chapters 17 and 18. So, any quick questions before we wrap up this first session? Yeah. Great question. So, with all of this devastation from the judgment, how can there be enough people left to fight? Well, uh, we know that the, the size of one army is 200 million. And then, of course, that's not the sum total of it. And then, of course, uh, I've already said that the number of believers left is, represents a very small remnant. I won't put a number on it, but it's small. But even if you just go with the number 200 million, which is one indicator we have in Scripture of a number, comparatively, that's pretty small. I mean, that's, uh, uh, what's, uh, see if I can try to, if I dare try to do math in real time. I was going to have Gary do it, but... Uh, he's way back there, so I'm going to make my effort. But we say 200 million divided by 7 billion, 500 million. That's 0.02%. So that's 2%, actually. So by the time you, so even if 
So if 98%, what I'm saying is if 98% of the Earth population is gone, you know, you still have a lot of people left. I mean, 200 million people is a lot of people. Well, I hope not. It won't matter because Christ is almighty. He can just snap his finger and they're done, you know. But yeah, no, I see what you're saying. It, it, that, and that's exactly the way we should be thinking about these things, as these are real, tangible, actual, prophetic. And so you're, you're doing the right thing by picturing in your mind, what does this look like with all this bloodshed and devastation? And it's going to be a mess. Sure. Yeah. So does transhumanism play into this at all? I think we've really not even touched on possible uh, you know, implications of some of these judgments and how Satan will be combating them and how they will, what they will really look like. But transhumanism, I think, will definitely play a role because Satan is going to use it to control armies. It's not going to be conventional warfare like we think of. I mean, there will be some conventional aspects of it, of people riding on horses or whatever they need to do. But I think there's also going to be a technocratic component to it where uh, because of artificial intelligence and you know human 2.0, which we've talked a lot about in our series on what in the world is going on, I think there's going to be some super soldiers, you know, the Jason Bourne types, uh, which is snatched right out of the pages of the CIA. I mean, that's a real story based on reality uh, that are part of this battle as well. Certainly part of Satan's regime, Antichrist regime, what role they'll play in the battle. Satan may have great plans for them to play a role in the Battle of Armageddon, but it's no match. So, All right, well, let's take a break uh, because we're, com- we're way short on time. So here in the auditorium, we'll come back together for the start of our service at 10 o'clock. For those of you live streaming, we usually start the live stream at about 10.25 or 10.30, give or take. Uh, because we only live stream the message. So stand by and join us again at about 1025, give or take.